ask you a question. How many of you are night persons? Put your hands up. Oh, I thought so. How many of you are morning persons? Will you please keep your hands up? And will the rest of you look around? These are the significant people of this generation. Have you ever discovered how many night owls marry morning doves? God has a fantastic sense of humor. I think from in utero I have been a morning person, but I married a night owl, at least in the early stages of our marriage, and we had some fascinating adjustments. And then we got four kids, and it got more exciting. My wife was the kind of person, you know, along around 9.30 in the morning, the second cup of coffee, her third brain cell would come on. She is trained professionally to be a writer, and she seems to get her best ideas at night, and she'd be banging away at the typewriter. 10 o'clock at night when any normal person is turning into a pumpkin and she bang, pulled it out. Hey, listen to this, Howie. <laughs> and I'm in the second or third stage of anesthesia. Well, we got four kids and would you believe out of the lot I only got one and a half morning person. Kind of depressing, isn't it? I asked my older daughter some time ago, Hey, Barb, how about getting up and watching the sunrise with me? She said, Daddy, if God intended people to watch the sunrise, he would have scheduled it a lot later in the day. I would like to introduce you to a piece of literature which Dallas Theological Seminary produces entitled Kindred Spirit. Have you seen it? Some of you perhaps subscribe to it. There are sample copies in the back of the auditorium. We'd love you to take one. These are issued quarterly. This is not a promotional piece. It is a ministry piece designed to minister to you as a layman. And in the center of this particular issue is a little card that you can fill out and send in, business reply card, and we will give you a two-year free subscription to the magazine. I'd love you to have it. And so, please take advantage of this. If uh, you don't care to fill out the card, but you have a business card and the address at which you'd like to receive these copies is clearly on that card. If you will give it to me, I'll take it back to the seminary tomorrow and we'll see to it that your name is put on the list and you will receive it. Last night, we focused our attention upon a man and his God. We discovered that anyone who would have a spiritually significant life and ministry must develop a passion. First of all, a passion for a person. His ultimate goal in life is to be approved by that divine person. That's what ultimately counts. Secondly, he needs a passion for excellence. An unashamed workman is his objective. One who doesn't need to hang his head in the presence of the Father. And we discovered you also need a passion for truth. The ability to handle, like an expert craftsman, the Word of God. Not only in your own life, 
but in the life and ministry of others. Now, in this hour, we want to focus our attention upon a man and his family. Building a family in today's society is a lot like walking a tight rope. It's a lot easier to fall off than it is to stay on. But there's one significant difference. If you fall off a tight rope, it's conceivable you get a second opportunity. But if you fail to prepare your children for contemporary society, there is no second go-round. In fact, the problem with being a parent is that when you are finally qualified, you're out of a job. Parenthood is one of the most significant of human relationships, and yet it's one for which you are frequently ill-prepared. And a lot of the preparation tends to be negative. I'd like to share with you this morning briefly, and I hope you have a piece of paper and a pencil to jot these down, not primarily because of what I'm going to say to you, but because of what you need to do about what we're going to say. And I know that this audience is comprised of quite a few grandparents. Quite a few people who, for the most part, have thought that you have finished your parenting role. Your children are grown, they're gone, they're married, they're in their particular sphere of life. That is not true. The greatest untapped reservoir of significant parenthood in America today is grandparents. As a matter of fact, I happen to be believe that as a grandparent, you may have more significant leverage than you ever had in your life. I find the average parent in the midst of the parenting process a very uptight individual. And you know, they're all brother Hendricks, you know, I'm going to blow it. Well, keep going with that attitude and you'll probably achieve your goal. In fact, if I could only say one thing to a parent, I think I would tell them, look, you need to learn to relax in the Lord. My Bible says, except the Lord build your house, you're laboring in vain in the process. Oh, but the typical American fashion is, you know, we're not pulling it off. Let's intensify the effort. Psalmist wrote, verse 4, for our generation. It's got America written all over it. Because in effect, what he's saying is it's vain for you to rise up early or to stay up late because you'll only eat the bread of sorrow. The American attitude is we're not pulling it off. Let's intensify our efforts. Let's give it the old college try. And there are many of us who have gone down this parenting road who have discovered firsthand that if you really think you are competent as a parent, God has fine, fantastic techniques by which to impress you with your incompetency. <laughs> he will not only let you hit the bottom, he will let you break clean through. So that the only way you have to look is up. And in the anguish of your heart, you cry out, Oh, God, unless you do something, nothing will be done. He loves to hear that. Because then when he works, you'll never be able to say, I was a competent parent. All you'll be able to say is, To God be the glory. Great things he hath done.
Let me give you some suggestions for survival in the parenting task. Number one, give your home a higher priority. The key verse for this conference is seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 6, 33. What a key verse. That's the secret of all of life. You see, until Jesus Christ is in first place, then all of your other priorities will never be properly aligned. I wish every one of you could have been in the workshop that Ted DeMoss conducted during the last hour. In my judgment, it was the most significant thing I have heard in 20 years on that subject, the subject of priorities. It was masterful. And you ought to get a tape. Every man, every woman ought to listen to that tape once every month for the next 12 months until you begin to brainwash yourself with those biblical priorities. And because he covered it so clearly, I'm not going to go into this area that much except to underscore what he said. It is my judgment that there is no conflict of duty in Christian experience. Your call to be a businessman or woman or homemaker is not in conflict with your call to be a father, with your call to be a husband, with your call to be a mother, with your call to be a wife. And personal failure does not arise from overwork. It arises from fogginess of priorities. You see, your objectives always determine your outcomes. You achieve that for which you aim. And if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Furthermore, you will concentrate on motion but it's motion without meaning. I spend all of my time with executives, with businessmen of various walks of life, trying to help them to sort out their priorities. And I discover most of these guys are almost out of their tree. You see, their problem is not activity. Their problem is they don't have a clear set of priorities. So they're bent out of shape every time they turn around. And by the way, you know who will bend you out of shape most? Other Christians. You know, I hate to tell you that. Don't look at me that way. Your local church. How do I know? Because that's what I've had to fight all of my life. So here's a guy who calls me up as a young man and said, Brother Hendricks, will you come over and preach for us? No, I'm sorry, I can't come over that night. Oh, really? How come? Well, I'm busy. You mean you're speaking somewhere else? No. I'm not speaking anywhere else. Well, then how come you can't come over? because I'm going to stay home and play with my kids. You what? I'm going to stay home and play with my kids. You mean you are not coming over to preach the Word to us? No, I am not coming over to preach the Word to you. I'm going to stay home and practice it with my kids. Is that all right? You get this long pause on the phone and I can almost hear it. You know, that's how liberalism gets started in the seminary.
and I listened to that baloney, and I wiped four kids out of the saddle, and somebody says, so who wants to listen to him? Ladies and gentlemen, if you do not make your decisions, someone else will make them for you. But they don't have your priority. Well, I want to say so much on that, but man, listen to the tape. <laughs> the moss has got it scoped out. He told you at breakfast he didn't believe me, but I just want you to know I believe him. <laughs> it's known as pouring coals of fire. Principle number two. Oh, do we need a dose of this. House clean your attitude. Ladies and gentlemen, I am convinced that attitudes are more lethal than actions. So I don't know how many times I've seen a man, a woman... Together, blow out three, four, five kids from the saddle and come to me with their anguish and say, Hey, I took them to church every time the doors were open. We had prayer before meals. We read the scripture. What's the problem? God's shafting us. And even the way they express it gives me the answer. Ladies and gentlemen, you can take your kids to church from now till Jesus comes. You can read the Bible to them until they are asleep. You can pray to them till they're paralyzed in the process. But if you've got a bad attitude, you will sour them permanently toward Jesus Christ and anything spiritual. Hardest kids we have to work with on the university campus are kids who came from a supposedly Christian home. And this kid says to me, look, Doc, don't hang that jazz on me. I had that stuff crammed down my throat all my life. And I totally repudiate it. And I say, that's okay, man. Be my guest. That's your choice. I just want to ask you one thing. Are you sure you are rejecting Christianity? Or are you rejecting the brand of Christianity that was foisted upon you by your parents? They're two different items. You got a Bible or a New Testament? Got one here? Oh, four of you do. All right. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Oh, this is a lulu of a section. I dare you to spend some significant time in this passage. And I want to begin reading at verse 29 of chapter 4. This whole section is a section that deals with your attitude. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. What a check on your conversation. Your conversation is a reflection of your heart, your attitude. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. You know what that's saying? You need an attitudinal house cleaning. Have you ever discovered how many bitter people there are in the evangelical community? You rubbed up against any of them? Boy, you back up to them, it's like backing up to a buzzsaw. <laughs> I think it was Vance Havner said, a lot of Christians are like porcupines. They have a lot of fine points, but you can't get near them. 
Boy, wherever I go, I run into these people. Bitter. Hostile. Angry people. The guy in my office, man, I've been counseling with this guy, and the guy I thought was making some progress, so I decided maybe he needed a little confrontation, and I said to him, hey, man, you know what your problem is? He said, nah, what is it? I said, you are an angry person. You know what? The guy got angry with me. <laughs> he stormed out of the office and took him three months to screw up enough courage to come back. And said, all right, now what do I do about it? That's the most infectious thing I can think of. See, I'm from Philadelphia, as is Gene. So when I first went to Texas, that was quite an education. And I had a Texan say to me one day, Hey, Hendricks, you need to get the big picture. He said, I want you to see something you've never seen before. And he took me out to a little town called Sweetwater, Texas, where they have a rattlesnake hunt every year. It's a big deal. They start at 7 o'clock in the morning. They go till 7 o'clock at night and find out how many rattlesnakes they can kill during that 12-hour period. They go all over that county and get these things, and they pile them up. Man, they had great big ones like this and little bitty ones like that. Just piles of them. I never saw so many of these babies. And in the end, with a great big barbecue. <laughs> you know what I thought to myself as I was standing there? If I were to take the venom directly from one of those snakes and put it directly into your system, I wouldn't hurt you as much as you and I are hurting the most significant people in our life. So you come home from the office, man, and you're tired, you know, it's a bad scene. All day you've been fighting it. Who gets it? The dear woman on the other side of the door, you know, what in the world did she do to deserve this? And the interesting thing is, I have businessmen who talk to their wife like they'd never talk to a secretary. For one obvious reason. You talk to your secretary like that, she get up and walk out the door and tell you to hang it on your beat. Well, what do you replace that bitterness with? Try verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. I want to ask you a very convicting question. You ready for this? Hold on. When's the last time you did a very kind thing for your partner? I was having lunch with one of my students. We were brown bagging it. We had a word of prayer, opened our bags, and out of his fell a little napkin. And something was written on it, and he picked it up and looked at it, and his eyes filled with tears. He said, look at that, Prof. That's the kind of woman I'm married to. You know what was written on that napkin? Pack in love by your favorite lover. Man, that's enough to make a good day, even in seminary. <laughs> I was with a favorite friend of mine, a surgeon in our community, invited me to have lunch with him. He thinks I'm ministering to him. He still doesn't have the picture. The truth of the matter is, I meet with him because he ministers to me. And a nurse ushered me into his office after a morning series of patients, and he said, Hey, Al, you got a sack? I said, Sure. 
And he picked up the phone, and he dialed those digits, and I heard him say something like this. Hi, sweetheart. I've been thinking about you all morning. I can hardly wait to see you again. I get a busy afternoon, but as soon as I can, I'll be home. Wife, I just want you to know, you're my greatest claim to fame. I love you. I'll see you later. You know how long that took? Less than 60 seconds. Don't give me that jazz. You're too busy. This is the busiest surgeon in the southwestern United States. But he doesn't have a screwed up priority system. He knows who's first in his life. And that person said to him, I want you to love your wife just like I love the church. And it's a full-time assignment. And then he says, notice the next, forgiving each other. you got to be kidding. There it is. You know, the hardest thing to get adults to say, two words. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And by the way, the more education they got, the harder it is to get them to say it. I have the hardest time with doctors and lawyers for some strange reason. They come into my office and they run all the way around the barn. Had a lawyer in there some time ago and I thought, man, he's going to make it up. Back down again he'd go. he come all the way up. Finally in the middle of it he says, oh, I'm sorry. I said, I beg your pardon? I thought the guy sneezed. No, he's saying, I'm sorry. But, you know, you don't want to say it too clearly. She's liable to understand. <laughs> and when you look at the pattern, forgiving each other. How? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. You know that favorite sin of yours? Got any in mind? I mean, the one you committed 3,419 times last week? You got that one? Suppose the 3,418th time you came into the presence of God and he said, What, are you here again? Man, you were just here five minutes ago. Gabriel, go get the club. <laughs> no. You see, he accepts you unconditionally. And that's the basis of your relationship to your kids. your partner and I kid you not some of you are never going to get off the dime I mean like never until you tell your teenager until you tell those kids are grown hey I'm sorry forgive me and man it's going to be like breaking a log jam both for you and for them When I was a young man starting out in the ministry, a businessman, just like many of you, gave me the greatest counsel I ever got. And by the way, I wish more of you men and women would spend time with kids out of seminary. They desperately need what you have to give. Many of our students would give their right arm if they had an older man or woman just like you who would build into their life and share with them the wisdom they have. They may have more knowledge of the scriptures so they can minister to you, but you got more wisdom in life, and you need to minister it to them. This businessman said to me, Hendricks, you're going to have a problem. I said, what's that? He said, I think God is going to give you a great ministry. But you're going to be bad out of shape. He said, you go to the office, and you get filled with all of this counseling, and you're working with all of these students and their problems, and you're involved in everybody else's life, and then you take that stuff, and you bring it home, and you dump it on your wife and kids, and you infect them in root. I said, well, you faced this all your life. How'd you handle it? I'll tell you, he said, I have a point of no return. 
I said, what's that? He said, it's a specific place on a highway on my way home. That's where I drop everything at the office. So I got one. Come to Dallas, I'll show it to you. It's White Rock Lake. On the way home in that freeway, when I get to White Rock Lake, that's where it gets dropped. Man, the whole ball of wax. Right on the freeway. I know it's bad ecologically. <laughs> you know where it is the next day? No, you missed it. It's crossed over. 31 years teaching in seminary, it's never missed me one day. Hey, Hendricks, here we are. Take us back. But you know what I've discovered? I discovered, and by the way, this is not limited to a minister. Always interesting to get into a home of a doctor, a lawyer, a businessman, and start talking to the kid and ask him, Hey, son, what do you want to be when you grow up? And how often a kid will say, I, I don't know, mister, what I want to be, but I'll tell you one thing I don't want to be. And guess what that is? See, that's, that's a bad news item. We're giving the most significant people in our life the hot end of a poker. And believe me, you have never met a man who has more appreciation of what you men and women have to face every single day. I have the highest respect for you. But you're going to have to come to grips with the problem. The pressures, the difficulties in contemporary life, and you come home, you know, it's like coming home from some bad nightmare. And what happens is these very important persons in your life get the spillover. That's why Paul says you need the control by the Spirit. Did you notice this whole attitudinal section is in the context of don't be drunk. Jesus Christ said, I am come that you might have life. I mean really live. Let me ask you, are you living or just existing? So wherever I go, I ask people, you know, how are you, friend? Oh, pretty good under the circumstances. Well, what in the world are you doing under there? You know, it's where the guy spends the bulk of his life. His face looks like a frontispiece of the Book of Lamentations. I kid you not, I get into so many Christian homes where it looks like it's going to rain. We're all sitting like a bunch of Dresden dolls on a crate of eggs saying we're Christian. I have two students, both of whom have come from the same home. I wish I had 5,000 more just like them. What a home. There are two boys out of that home. There are three girls out of that home. They are all in vocational Christian work. The man was a farmer here in California. I had the privilege of spending some time in their home, and I got the secret. But I asked one of these young men, hey, what do you remember most about your father? Well, he said a lot of things. Well, he said, give me some specifics. Well, he said, I used to throw a paper route. And I have to get up about 4.15 in the morning to throw the papers. And oftentimes I come by my parents' bedroom and the door would be ajar and I'd look in. And there would be my father on his knees in prayer. And I used to think, what in the world is he doing that for? You know, there's nobody listening. You know, nobody watching him. And, you know, all of a sudden it dawned on me one day, hey, he's got the real disease. And then he said, the second thing I remember my father for is his rolling on the floor with laughter with us kids. We used to laugh more at him than the jokes. And I thought to myself, what an invincible combination. By the way, what will they remember you for? They'll remember you. And not for what some of you think.
See, I used to think my kids would remember my sermons. <laughs> they don't remember them. In fact, neither do I. <laughs> I used to think my kids would be impressed that I was a seminary professor. That's impressive. Don't you think so? You don't think so? <laughs> Neither did they. Bill asked me one day, Hey, Dad, when are you getting a new job? I said, What's the matter? When do, don't you like my job? No. How come? Oh, I said, I can't explain to anybody where you work. They all think you work in a cemetery. <laughs> Sometimes I think I do. <laughs> no, my kids aren't impressed that I know Greek and Hebrew. In fact, I hate to tell you this, but they're not even impressed that I came out here to speak to you. <laughs> How's that grab you? Now, my kids are only impressed as your kids are impressed by the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. By the changes that they know must be the product of the supernatural because you are not naturally like that and nobody knows it better than your kids. Here's the fourth one. Communicate your love. John 13, 34, and 35, a passage that has been referred to on several occasions already in this weekend. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I guess this has been the hardest thing for me to choke down. It's the hardest thing that I've had to face in my own life as a parent. Boy, I love my kids, you wouldn't believe how much I love my kids. But many times my kids never got the message. Wasn't their problem. It was mine. For your information, we have done an extensive amount of research, and the one thing we know about kids from Christian homes is that inordinately they report that they were never convinced that their parents love them. And you say to me, do you, do you really think that's true? Yeah, I do, if you understand what they're saying. They're not really saying, no, Mom and Dad hate me. What they're saying is, they didn't communicate it well. I just had a group of students last week turn in an account an autobiographical account of the homes from which they come. And my assistant and I have gone over those papers. And for your information, in a seminary, an evangelical seminary, of the kids who came from Christian homes, 65% of those kids somehow felt that their parents had a hard time communicating their affection. See, most of us from our generation are particularly hung up at this point. Because we have never come to grips with answer, asking and answering the basic question, do my kids know I love them? Does my partner know I love him, I love her? I want to give you four or five ways that you can test yourself on this. People ask me all the time, how in the world do you communicate? See, I have people in my office asking me that. A lady came in some time ago, I asked you the simple question, do you love your son? Do I love my son? You don't think I came up here to be asked a stupid question like that, do you? Well, I said, how does your son know that you love him? Well, she said, I wash his clothes, and I iron them, and I prepare all of his meals, and I keep his room clean. I said, how old is your son? She said, two. <laughs> I said, I'll bet that's a biggie. 
Now, I bet that really comes through like horseradish. How do your kids know you love them? Let me give you a couple things. Number one, time. It takes time. Your kids do not know you love them unless you are willing to spend some quality time with them. Now what happens is we come to something like this and we get all bent out of shape and we say, right, brother Henry, <laughs> thanks a lot for me. And we go home on Sunday and we say to our boy, come on, son, hurry up. I don't have a lot of time to horse around. Hendrick says I'm supposed to play with you. <laughs> so, you know, you get the ball and you burn it through the kid. And there are 101 places you'd rather be than there, and you know where you might as well be, any one of the 101. Let's suppose you come home Monday night, and your little guy meets you and you say, Hey, man, what a treat it is to see you. Let's see when dinner is on. Mom says, well, it's going to be a little later tonight. Give you about 20 more minutes. What would you like to do, son? He says, hey, Dad, could we go play ball? Sure, man. And you get that ball and you toss that thing around with that kid. Pretty soon, Mom says, dinner's ready. Good night, man. That's the fastest 20 minutes I spent today. Boy, I enjoyed that, son. Huh. That's okay. <laughs> But he got a message. And by the way, you guys and gals, the fastest way people put you under the pile is by constantly asking you how much time do you spend, and all the time you say, Ooh, wow, I'm busy. Woo! And the kid is not blown away because you're busy. What he really wants to know is, how do you spend your time when you elect to spend it? Do you choose? to spend it with him, with her. And by the way, that goes for you grandparents. That's the fun about being a grandparent, you know? I have more fun with my little granddaughter. Man, I can play and play. And when I get tired, I send her back to her mother. <laughs> You wouldn't believe what you men and women who are grandparents can communicate of your love to your children, your grandchildren. And by the way, that stuff is permanent. My grandmother marked my life permanently more than any other person on planet Earth. In fact, I am convinced I'm in the ministry today because of her, humanly speaking. Second, by listening. Now, you don't have to spend much time with an individual before you discover they got a problem in this area. Because most of us talk too much. We're like old McDonald's wife with the talk talk here and the talk talk there and the here talk, there talk, everywhere talk talk. Son, how many times have I told you? I don't know, Dad. The computer broke down. <laughs> so that's why I ask a person, you know, how much time have you spent listening to your son, to your daughter, to your grandchildren? So I didn't say talking. I know how much time you spent that. I want to know how much time you spent listening. See, listening is a harder skill than talking but we're always giving courses in university in speech, very rarely in listening. Those 75% of any administrator's time is usually spent listening. And by the way, you have a visual aid in your body. Did you look in the mirror this morning? Did you discover you have two ears, but only one mouth? <laughs> Can you imagine what it would be like had God reversed that? <laughs> Third, 
interests. You see, what happens, most of us are so hung up with what we're interested in that we never flow into the life of our children to find out what are you interested in. And what you are interested in is what I become interested in. I had a doctor friend who almost blew his one son clean out of the saddle. The kid today has got a remarkable business going that he developed on his own because the father could not choke down the fact that that kid would never be a doctor like him. In fact, he'd never go to college. But the kid was interested in electronics. And he wired his room up. Oh, man, it was fantastic. Gene, I used to look forward to going there because every time we'd go to his house, he'd say, Hey, Uncle Allie, come on up and see the room. Sure, man. We'd go up. He'd step in the room. The lights would go out. The strobes would come on. The music would play, you know, man. And we're up and Pops downstairs tearing a scab off his ulcer. I work with professional football players. You know what I've discovered? Most of them have children who could care less about football. You know, everybody's coming up to ask for their autograph. You know, kids looking, hey, Dad, I'll come and want yours. You know, he's not impressed with us. He's totally uncoordinated. You know, he's almost got spastic characteristics compared with his father. But man, he's into something else. And is he interested? Fourth. Presence. Make sure you spell that correctly. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. -E. Not the kind of presence you buy. You were so hung up on that in a materialistic society, and our whole thing is, hey, man, he's a toy I bought for you. Now go get lost for 12 hours. Or here's $10, go play in traffic. Now, you know what he needs more than any 10 bucks or any toy you can give? is you. You are the greatest thing that you can give to a kid. By the way, a lot of women know this. That's very hard in counseling. Because often I have a woman, and I say to you, say to her, you know, did your husband ever take you out to dinner? Does he ever? I'll bet it's exciting. Tell me about it. She'll look across the desk and say, He's not there. What do you mean he's not there? He's sitting right across the table. But he's a thousand miles away. You know, he's working on a deal. And he's turned on his uh-huh. <laughs> oh, some of you have been down that road. Uh, it's called the laughter of identification. <laughs> Do you ever talk to a person across the table who looks slightly above your head? Does that bother you like it does me? I have the strongest urge to <clears throat> reach across, you know, and pull that guy's head down so he can talk to me eyeball to eyeball. See, it's a question of being there and all there. Fifth, and pray for me at this point, because if I get hung up on this, we'll be here all day. And that's affirmation. Reinforcing the positive, not simply correcting the negative. By the way, you ought to take a little tape recorder and run it in your house sometime and see how many times you say, don't do that. Yeah, you cut that out. Stop that. Shut up. See, kid's nine before he learns his name is not shut up. 
The reason I can get hung up on this very easy is, ladies and gentlemen, I spent all of my life in a theological seminary where we get the end product of this. We had a guy at our seminary some time ago, one of the most brilliant guys we've ever had, 160 IQ, which is as high as the particular instrument we have will measure. I am convinced considerably beyond that. This guy went to an Ivy League school. I'm on the admissions committee. I'll never forget the reference that came in from his major professor. He said, I have been teaching in this institution for 36 years, 32 of them as chairman of the department, and never have I seen a young man in this kid's leg. And I'm sorry he's going to waste his life in the ministry. <laughs> he signs his name. He walked into my office one day. He said, hey, Prof, I'm checking it to you. I said, you what? He said, I'm leaving. I said, you got to be kidding. He said, I'm for real. So why are you leaving? He said, because I really don't think I have it for the ministry. You know, I had the hardest time to keep from roaring in his face. I thought, man, we better not tell anybody else around here you don't have it. Because they'll all be headed for the registrar's office to resign. This kid draws more water on the campus than anybody we've had. I said, tell me about your family. He said, it's a bad news item. I said, tell me about your father. He said, that's worse. I said, how come? He said, Prof, I cannot remember once in my life my father telling me, son, that's a good job. He said, I'd come home with a 98, the highest grade in the school, and he'd say, well, where are the other two points? His favorite name for me was Dummy. 160 IQ. See, the facts have nothing to do with it. You get called by the most significant person in your life, dummy, and you begin to believe it. You see, I spend all of my time as a major professor convincing kids, even at a Christian home, hey, man, you can make it. I got confidence in you. God's going to do something for you. Because, you see, we come out of an orientation in which we're sort of perfectionistic. We're performance-oriented. And the only way the kid can get any positive feedback from you is by ending up at the top of the pile, whether it's in sports or academics or whatever realm. And I happen to believe the greatest contribution you ever make to a child, either as a parent or as a grandparent, is in the realm of that child's self-image, that little picture he or she carries around about themselves. By the way, that's why grandparents are so significant. Because they're not hung up with all of the emotional involvements. And therefore, can sort of see a kid with a little more objectivity. Like one guy said to me when I said, why did you come to seminary, this incredibly gifted guy? He said, I really don't think I could ever have stayed away. I said, why? He said, my grandmother looked me in the eye one day, deep into those eye sockets, and said, son, I love you. I think God wants to use you. And he said, I could never recover from those words burning deep into my soul because I knew God was speaking to me through her. Jean and I have had some fascinating experiences with our own children. We were writing that little book that we wrote called Heaven Help the Home, and the kids were all home from university at the time, so we decided to pick their brain to see if we could find, you know, what they remembered. And I said to Bill, my younger son, hey, Bill, what do you remember about Mom? Oh, he said, lots of things. Well, you know, give me some specifics. Well, he said, you remember when I played football in eighth grade for St. Mark's? I said, man, I've never forgotten it. He said, neither did I. He said, you remember one day we were playing St. Joseph's 
and we were losing 64 to nothing at the half. He said, man, we hadn't even scored one first down. And it was raining. I mean, it was pouring. The field was one massive mud puddle. And he said, we came out of the huddle, and before the quarterback called set, I looked up in the stands, and there were only three people there, one of whom was Mom, with her hair. (laughs) And just then he said, the quarterback called set, and I put my fist down in that mud, and I heard this voice out of the stands say, Go get him, Willie! Did you hear what he said? That's a kid, a senior in university, looking back on his life to say that the most significant thing he could remember about his mother was her yelling her head off in a disaster game. So secure that she could care less about hair that was because her boy was involved. One day, Roger Staubach and I were chatting together at the field. This was two years before he retired. I said, Roger, you've been in football all your life. You know, how did you ever get so hooked on this thing? He said, I got hooked on it by my parents and my grandparents, both of whom never missed a game I played. His father, who was a businessman, would never schedule anything on the night Roger Staubach played. And it was during that Super Bowl season that his mother died. And he played that remarkable game and dedicated it to her. Because he said, that's where I get started. That's why I'm here. Because she believed in me. See, are you on your kid's team or on your kid's back? You need to get off your kid's back get onto their team. And I guess my greatest desire is that I would enlist a few more grandparents to get on the team. Say, well, you know, I made a lot of mistakes. Fantastic. Welcome to the club. I have never found a significant parent who will not tell you they blew it. There are no exceptions for one obvious reason. You're not a perfect person, therefore you're not a perfect parent. And to me, the exciting thing is to realize God always wants to start with you right where you are. And in the midst of whatever failure you may be responsible for, he wants to say, hey, now I'm interested in finding how real is your faith. Not too hard to trust God when everything turns out. But what about when it's all going in the opposite direction and right now my kids could care less about Jesus Christ and they've blown apart their own marriage and they're really in serious trouble. And I say, how does your faith work now? You believe you can trust God now? to do His supernatural work in the life of your children? Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to be Your servants because You never frustrate us. You never put us under a pile of guilt except with a view to receiving your forgiveness. 
You never call us to a task without providing all of the resources, whether we're parents or grandparents or a partner or a single unmarried person. And Father, I pray that today we may learn what it is to walk by faith and not by sight, seeking first the kingdom of God and especially in our family. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen.